1: This is episode 2.7, Ain't Seen nothing Yet, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan and grumpy space prince.
0: (laughs) And I'm Nina. Can I just say that Jared does not deserve Lila as a mentor?
1: No, Jared does not deserve Lila in any capacity. (laughs) He does deserve Lila's boot in his face.
0: It doesn't seem to have deterred him any
1: which honestly is kind of to his credit.
0: Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 138 patrons. Thank you all. And special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Johnny L, Trey Sorian, Michael SH, and Ashley J. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at gundampodcast.com slash patreon.
1: Thank you all so much for your continuing support. This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 6, To Earth. And we research Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, a uniquely Japanese take on the Mother Complex, Ajase, and Nikon Therapy, and Solar Power from Space. But first, for a recap on what happened last week, the Titans News Network. Welcome back to TNN, the Titans News Network, the only network where all of our employees are lieutenants. We return now to our ongoing coverage of The Race in Space as Cowardly AYUG Terrorists Run in Terror from the Might of the Titans. The latest development? Titans pilots attached to the Alexandria Task Force have reported seeing AYUG forces fighting amongst themselves. TNN cameras even caught this footage of an Ayug mobile suit called, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, a Riku Diasu being destroyed in a skirmish with other AYUG mobile suits. The Titans Intelligence Division believes that the red Riku Diasu destroyed in the battle was the personal machine of mysterious Aeyug pilot Quattro Bajina, and that it was destroyed as part of a power struggle within the Aug leadership, possibly by what experts are now calling the Captain Heckner faction. After the break, we'll interview Basque Aum, author of the New York Times bestseller, Why 50% of Everyone Will Betray You, and What to Do About It about why rebel groups like A.U.G. always destroy themselves by splintering into feuding factions, just like Xeon. In other news, brilliant engineer and caring family man Franklin Badon remains missing somewhere in space. If you have any information about his whereabouts, please contact the Titan's tip line right away so that he can be reunited with his child. And remember, this is TNN, and gravity is your friend. And now the recap, covering... Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam, Episode 6, To Earth.
0: Jared walks into the briefing room of the Alexandria and catches Lila and the other Federation forces making fun of him and the Titans. They talk a big game, but what have they accomplished really? Though they all change their tune when Jamaican tells them anyone who joins the Titans is automatically promoted. They will be pursuing two Ayug ships, the Argama and the Mont Blanc, with Jared in command. When Lila protests that she has much more experience, Jared reminds her that, as a Titan, Jared is also treated as if he is one rank higher. Lila leaves in a huff. On the Argama, Astonaji comes up to where Camille is working at a console. What is that? Camille is cagey, but he's been working on a new mobile suit design, based off the Mark II, but with improved armor. He is calling it the Zeta Gundam. Hey, that's the name of the show! (laughs) Astanaji is admiring the design, but before he can look at it more closely, Camille ejects the disc and runs off. On the Alexandria, Jared catches up with Lila, and throws a punch in retaliation for her humiliating comments about him earlier. With the ease of a lifetime in space, Lila dodges and trips Jared, then pushes herself off the ceiling to kick him in the face. You're not going to beat me. Why can't you Earthnoids understand the difference between Earth and space? Jared can't understand why it's all going wrong. He prepared before he came to space. He grabs hold of Lila's arm, demanding she explain to him why his skills and preparation aren't translating into ability. She shakes him off, calling him a brute. You always do things your own way, with no consideration for how others feel. Every person, every situation, demands its own unique response. Ultimately, she blames his inexperience. Humbling himself, Jared asks her for help. He dreams of leading the Titans someday, and needs to learn from his failures if he is ever going to defeat Camille and move forward. He seems serious, and Lila finally agrees to help him. Camille moves through the passages of the ship headed to Rekoa's room to talk to her before she leaves on her upcoming mission, but as he approaches, he sees she is already talking to Quattro. The two are close together, with Quattro leaning against the wall and toward Rekoa. Turning quickly, Camille goes back the way he came, dropping the disc. He stops at Emma's room. She seems surprised to see him but invites him in. He lingers in the hall, and Emma teases him that while she's happy to talk to him, she's not his girlfriend or his shoulder to cry on. Frustrated and embarrassed, Camille blurts out that he just wanted to know why someone like her would join the Titans. Rekkoa arrives. She found Camille's disc and is returning it to him. In his haste to get away from them both, he knocks it from her hands before speeding off down the hallway. Rekoa pushes into Emma's room and asks to speak to her. In an observation room of the Argama, Blex and Beckoner monitor their conversation. For some reason, the door is open, and a passing Camille peers through the doorway to eavesdrop. Emma is telling Rekoa that she doesn't want to return to the Titans, but that even if she did, it would now be impossible. At the same time, why does Ayug have to be so violent and aggressive? They put a lot of innocent people in danger when they fired on Green Nova One. Rekoa counters that, compared to what the Titans have done, the casualties caused by Ayug are almost inconsequential. Has Emma ever heard of the Colony 30 incident? When mass demonstrations and unrest broke out throughout Colony 30, Basque ordered the entire colony gassed. Emma sinks, suddenly, her head resting in her hands. She can't believe it. Blex and Beckoner, watching, think they may have to show her the remnants of the colony to truly convince her. Titan's forces are catching up to the Ayug ships. Rekoa's mission has her going to Earth toward Jaburo in a tiny one-person ship called a Capsule. Meanwhile, the mobile suit pilots will attack a nearby defense satellite. While they suit up, Camille asks Quattro why it is that these conflicts happen. Quattro thinks it's because people naturally doubt and distrust each other, which makes them think they are right and others are wrong, naturally leading to conflict. But when Camille asks him if that's why he fights the Titans, he says instead that the Titans are out of control. Camille, looking for some kind of guidance, asks Quattro what he should do. Follow your feelings. If what you're doing feels right, then it is. By the way, Rekoa is leaving for Earth soon. This is your last chance to talk to her. Camille runs off and Quatro mutters, He reminds me of Amaro. Camille catches Rekoa before the hangar she's in is sealed off, but seems unable to convey his feelings. He's concerned that she is going alone, but as she points out, the capsule will only hold one. She continues her pre-flight checks, but he still can't quite say anything and his eyes are glistening when she tells him to leave the hangar, they are about to seal it so that she can launch. Jared and his squad have launched in their hyzaks, and as they prepare to fight he repeats back to himself things that Lila has told him. I must sense the enemy hostility through the armor of my mobile suit. Emanate your mind through the vacuum of space. Quattro and the rest of the Aug pilots begin their attack on the Solar Array Defense Satellites and the battle begins. It isn't long before Camille, worried that Rekua will launch, surrounded by enemies, takes a damaged Mark II and joins the fray. The Mont Blanc is destroyed, overwhelmed by enemy fire. Lounging by a pool somewhere on Earth, amuro Rey sees a twinkling light cross the sky and feels something. Who's that calling out to me? Jared and Camille fight better than either has before. Faster and more agile, they dodge and attack. Camille slashes off the Hizak's hand with a beam saber and kicks it away, buying Rekoa's capsule time and space to launch safely. Relieved that the first part of Rekoa's mission is a success, he is caught off guard when Jared charges him again, but manages to raise his beam saber in time to slice off the Hizak's arm, when it charges by. The Titans retreat back to the Alexandria to continue pursuit of the Argama and the hunt for Ayug's base. Over South America, that night's sunset is punctuated by shooting stars, as the remnants of the Mont Blanc burn up, falling through the atmosphere. All right.
1: We're going to talk about Zeta Gundam Episode 6 To Earth.
0: Or in Japanese, Chikyu Ken E, which I'm pretty sure just means To Earth. <laughs>
1: This is definitely the horniest episode of Zeta so far. (laughs) Yes. There's so much flirtation going on in this episode.
0: And feels. Camille cop feelings.
1: (laughs) Those can be deadly, you know, especially in Gundam.
0: Highly dangerous.
1: But not just Camille. We have that conversation between Jared and Lila that starts out very aggressive, and then it's clear by the end of it that they're flirting with each other.
0: Before we start getting into the details... uh We've decided to talk about most of the episode in terms of Camille and Jared, the ways in which they are experiencing similar things and the ways in which they are diverging. Because so much of the story of this episode feels as if it revolves around them and their feelings. There are a couple of other points that we're also going to want to touch on, but the bulk of what we want to talk about in some way connects to Camille or Jared.
1: Last week, we started to notice that Camille and Jared were beginning to follow parallel tracks. And we had a sense from that first episode, from that interaction between the two of them, that there was some kind of connection. And they keep butting heads every couple of episodes. They have a little dust up.
0: is the daibaru.
1: Well, exactly.
0: The rival. <laughs>
1: This is where that becomes clear, because it's this episode when Jared finally says about Camille, I will do anything to beat him. I have to beat him. I will swallow my pride. I will do whatever it takes to be able to beat that guy on the other side.
0: Let's start from the relationships because that's more or less chronological to the episode. We've got Camille working on his super secret mobile suit project that mm-hmm. for some reason he doesn't want anyone to see, but we know that he's calling it the Zeta Gundam.
1: Hey, I've heard that somewhere before.
0: And he's obviously very excited to go show this to Rekoa. He wants to go straight to Rekoa and show her what he's been working on and show off a little bit for her. But when he gets there to talk to her...
1: Of course he wants to go show it to Rekoa because he's projecting all of his mom feelings onto Rekoa. Look, I know he's also, like, attracted to her, and there's that weird aspect of it, too, but you can't deny he has been projecting mom feelings onto Recoa.
0: Yeah, but then it gets increasingly edible because he gets there, and she's already talking to Quattro. hmm And the body language is fairly intimate between her and
1: Quatro. is doing the, like, arm-on-the-wall, lean, kind of looming over Recoa.
0: They're standing very close together. Quattro is expressing his concerns about this mission, you know. And Camille basically turns and goes away in a huff, like, ugh, some other man is talking to her. <laughs> this is terrible. I can't handle it.
1: Camille has had bad experiences with men who are attracted to his mother. Camille is definitely projecting dadness onto Quattro in good and bad ways.
0: Anyway, my point is he's clearly feeling some jealousy mm-hmm. about Recoa that he doesn't have any grounds <laughs> to feel.
1: See, I think Camille is feeling more than anything else isolated. He doesn't have any friends here. Like He's trying to make these connections with Emma and with Rekoa, but he's also feeling like there's no room for him to make those connections if someone else is already there.
0: Which is a it's sort of a false dichotomy, but certainly one that lots of young people fall into. Like, no, I'm your best friend. <laughs> you can't have other best friends. Right. Like-
1: and Camille has no friends here. He doesn't really have a place on the Argama. They don't have anything for him to do.
0: Well, he keeps insisting that he doesn't want to be Aug, So what exactly are they supposed to do with him?
1: Well, but they weren't doing anything with him before that. When he first ran away and joined the Argama crew, he seemed a lot more enthusiastic about joining AUG, but like, they just—they gave him a spare suit. Cause,
0: for safety reasons. <laughs> right, for safety
1: reasons, they gave him a pilot suit, Uh, but they didn't give him anything to do. He's got no duties. He's got no assignments. He's just sort of superfluous.
0: I would say that it seems like their intent is eventually for him to undergo training of some kind so that he can be a pilot. Maybe. I just like, I get what you're saying and I completely understand it. I do think Camille is lonely, but also you ran away to join the rebels. They have other things to do besides babysitting you and making you like feel better <laughs> about this decision you made.
1: Them behaving reasonably doesn't change Camille's emotions.
0: That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I understand. I just think like, if Camille is feeling neglected by the brass, so to speak, he's being immature.
1: <laughs> well, yes. I would say I agree with you completely. I think that this 17-year-old boy who just watched both of his parents murdered is behaving immaturely.
0: And I'm not trying to discount his feelings.
1: That would make you unique aboard the Argama.
0: Anyway... Yes, obviously, he's lonely. Yes, obviously, he's also got the hots for Rekoa, Mike.
1: <laughs> and Emma.
0: Having found Rekoa otherwise occupied, which sounds way dirtier than it actually is, <laughs> he goes straight to Emma, the other woman he likes. Like, so here's another thing. He probably could have befriended Astonaji. Astonaji was interested in what he was doing. Yep. Instead, he got all secretive and left as quickly as he could. I, I don't know how seriously he's actually looking for friends.
1: You think he's just looking for lovers
0: and mom replacements and dad replacements,
1: why not both at the same time?
0: Ooh. um, so anyway, he shows up at Emma's door and she sees right through all of this and she's
1: so she's like so flirtatiously teasing him.
0: I don't know about how flirty she's being. She's absolutely teasing him and enjoying it.
1: The combination of the look in her eyes and the way she sort of like leans against the doorframe, it felt flirtatious to me. Okay. Not serious flirting, right? It's teasing flirting.
0: Okay. Yeah, I think it. Okay.
1: Well, and she says, don't expect any sympathy from me. We're not lovers. Mm-hmm. The translation in the subtitles is we have no relationship, but she says koibito. Yeah. She says lovers. I don't know of another translation for koibito.
0: Yeah. I mean, in the, in the Japanese, she says something along the lines of, we're not lovers or anything like that. Like, I'm not your shoulder to cry on. I'm not your <laughs> girlfriend. Sure, come in and talk to me, but I'm not here to deal with your emotional stuff.
1: That's, I'm not here for that. I, I just want to know why you joined the Titans.
0: Right. Um, well, and she invites him into her room. He just like stands at the door. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't come in.
1: He was He was not prepared for this. <laughs> I'm not sure that he ran away from Recoa intending to go straight to Emma. I kind of felt like he was just heading back to his quarters and he saw the hallway leading to Emma's room and he was like, oh, Emma.
0: <laughs> and then because he left his disc behind, Recoa comes and is like, oh, hey, you dropped this. And he, Oh my god I can't <laughs> Tom will tell you the first time I saw this scene I m- mimicked it in exaggerated fashion He knocks the disc Out of Rekoa's hands And runs away <laughs> He doesn't say anything to either of them He's just like eh, And <laughs> runs Away from both of them Entirely Unable to deal with his own Feelings about these
1: women just entirely unable to deal with his own feelings, full stop. Period. End of sentence.
0: Um, so, yeah. <laughs> and then on the other side, we have Jared and Lila. Oh, I love Lila. <laughs> I love Lila so
1: much. Yeah, Jared gets a better result than Camille does, but Jared's flirting technique is not any better.
0: Here's what I don't understand. Why does Jared pick a fight with her? He's already won, quote unquote, because he's been given command... Of the group that is going to enact their next mission. Even though she has more experience than him, you know, he gets given the command because he's a Titan. Mm -hmm. She leaves kind of in a huff, Mm
1: -hmm. angry
0: about this situation. Mm -hmm. It's true that she and her men were teasing Jared earlier, basically making fun of him for like, oh, the Titans think they're so great, but they never do anything. They never accomplish anything. And they're looking at (laughs) Jared as they say this, because every time he's gone out, he's failed (laughs) pretty much.
1: So I think Jared has pretty low self-esteem.
0: You don't say.
1: And he's pursuing all of these accomplishments and achievements and awards and ranks because he thinks that if he achieves all of these things, then people will think good things about him and then he'll be happy with himself. And Lila is there with a needle poking holes in that balloon of delusions because even though Jared is a titan and higher ranked and in command of the mission, Lila still doesn't respect him. He craves that respect and he needs to believe that if he can just rise high enough in the army, if he can just become the biggest titan of them (laughs) all, then everyone will have to respect him. And Lila is just like, no. Nah, boy.
0: Well, and, and with good cause, right? He takes a swing at her. She kicks him in the <laughs> face, which I love to see, um, and proceeds to explain to him that if he insists on fighting her, he's going to lose and it will be embarrassing. <laughs> and he insists anyway, and she it, you know, very cleverly beats him after this short fight. She delivers the lesson of, like, Earthnoids need to learn that space is not the same as Earth. (laughs) That being up here is not just like being on Earth. And Jared gets angry and he, like, grabs her and is like, why? And she calls him a brute. And he is basically like, explain to me how I am being a brute, which to me felt so of the moment now, but like a person who has done something wrong and the person calling them on it and the person who has done the wrong thing, like demanding, no, explain to me, (laughs) how is the thing that I did wrong? Except that Lila, at least in this situation, is willing and able to explain to Jared.
1: Because Jared pretty.
0: And Lila, very self-confident. She doesn't feel like she's in any danger from him. No,
1: You know, this is where I talk about Lila flirting very aggressively. She takes the, like, hand on the wall, kind of looming over Jared, even though he's significantly taller than her posture.
0: But they're in low gravity or no gravity, so she looks taller than him in the scene. (laughs) Yeah, this is uh, what's called in shoujo manga and anime, kabedon. It's usually a guy leaning towards a girl, so she's trapped between him and a wall and his arm. Uh, But here, it's Lila doing it to Jared.
1: And she starts explaining to him, you have to take into account other people. You can't be solely obsessed with your own actions and your own performance. You have to think about the other people you're interacting with, and that's true for mobile suits. And then, very quickly, this becomes talking about sex, or at least about romance and relationships.
0: And and ultimately, she agrees to mentor him basically and it does seem as if a lot of that has to do with his ambition you know he he tells her he needs to win and she's like why why do you need to win And he says because i want to lead the titans someday i have this dream of someday being in charge of the titans she's like okay i'll help you out which isn't in a lot of ways a contrast to camille's relationships where
1: nobody cares about him
0: I think Rekoa cares about him very much. I think Rekoa does not want to give him the wrong idea. Mm. (laughs) She doesn't want to give him false encouragement. Every time she talks about him, it's like that boy, you know, like (laughs) she is a grown woman. And here's this boy to her who clearly has a crush on her. So jumping ahead somewhat. But when she's preparing for her mission, he comes to say goodbye to her. Right, because he, he wants to say something to her before she leaves. He actually can't bring himself to say much more than her name.
1: <laughs> not even her name. He keeps saying her rank. I think he says her name once, yeah. but then he's like, Ensign. Yeah. But Ensign. And his, eye,
0: his eyes go misty, and the music goes romantic, and the camera pans like, from her face down to her legs. She's in a cockpit and wearing a flight suit, so it's not all that sexy, but we know what that <laughs> pan means. <laughs>
1: We actually had an argument about that ban (laughs) and whether or not it's lewd.
0: I think it's meant to demonstrate to us that Camille is looking her over.
1: Well, he's definitely looking at her, but maybe he's just contemplating the very dangerous thing she's about to do.
0: Can't it be both? And I would describe her as chilly in this scene. I feel like she's trying to impose and maintain some distance. She doesn't want to hear a love confession. She is not interested in hearing him get all emotional about her going on this mission.
1: See, I don't ascribe that much intentionality to her here. I think she is about to do something very dangerous. All of her attention is on that, on preparing to launch and mm-hmm. do this reentry to Earth. And she just like cannot be bothered to deal with this kid who has a crush on her right now. Mm. She like needs to start doing her pre-flight checks and her countdowns and Camille needs to get out of the hangar.
0: Yeah. At first, he's like, you're doing this all by yourself? And she's like, there's only room for one person in the (laughs) capsule.
1: Camille might like to see if that's true.
0: (laughs) Um, And later, as her checks continue, she's like, you need to put your visor down. You need to get out of the hangar. That's about all she says to him, I think. Mm -hmm. He is clearly feeling some strong emotions.
1: She has, since Camille got there, sort of been tasked with watching out for him.
0: Yeah, how many times is she the one trying to keep him from getting into a mobile suit?
1: Yeah, well, she's the one who showed him how to put on the, the flight suit and how to put on the helmet. So of all the people on the crew, Rekha one of the handful that Camille actually has a relationship with, even if it's not a great one. And she's leaving. And that leaves him with what? Emma and Quattro,
0: And a whole other crew, if he could be bothered to make an effort with any of them. This is another story you learn as you get older. Just because you want to be friends with someone, doesn't mean that they have to want to be friends with you.
1: I agree with you that Asanaji probably wants to be friends with Camille. I don't know about anybody else there.
0: Well, we can't say. We haven't seen any interactions there, have we?
1: No, we haven't. Well, except for that one guy who was like, why are you in a flight suit?
0: (laughs) Well, because (laughs) they were talking about him. (laughs) He was like, oh, no. (laughs)
1: They thought they were talking about him behind his back. Well, but it turned out they were literally talking about him directly behind his back.
0: Poor Camille.
1: Hey, I introduced myself last episode as the number one Camille apologist. I'm on record. Yes. <laughs> Say it.
0: I feel mean for not liking him, but I don't like him.
1: You don't have to like him. You were never <laughs> him at any point in your life.
0: <laughs> but I like you.
1: You like me now. <laughs> you didn't know me when I was Camille. <sighs>
0: And ultimately, his feelings for Recoa, whether they're the more friendly maternal ones or the more romantic ones, are what drive him to steal another Mark II and go <laughs> back into battle again. I don't know why anyone is surprised anymore that he does this.
1: They're noticeably less surprised this time. They
0: had to just tell him to. Like, they're very blasé about the danger. Nobody's ever... Super worried like, oh, no, he shouldn't be out there. It's dangerous, especially Blex and Beckner. They're like, oh, go to it, kid. Let's see how you do. They ought to just give him damaged mobile suits and be like, all right, go I to mean, town, kid.
1: But we know that Beckner was a Federation officer during the one year war. From what we saw in First Gundam, we can assume that he is therefore very experienced at sending teenagers into battle. <laughs> um,
0: uh, this is not related to camille or jared but i also don't like blex or beckoner i feel as if they vacillate back and forth between being kind of smarmy like Meh, our plans sneaky plans good plans and then like in a panic every time there's a battle they're both like why isn't that done already don't tell me it's impossible do the thing why is no just <laughs> like
1: well they're often sort of low-key fighting with each other Mm. giving contradictory orders. Blex, very early on, like one of the first interactions between the two of them that we saw was Blex ordering Beckner to put on a normal suit and Beckner just ignoring him.
0: So yeah, there's a a, like frantic energy that I don't like. I miss Bright. Bright Bright developed that calm, captain-y energy. Gravitas? Yeah. I miss Bright too. Younger than either of those dudes.
1: Too bad we'll never see him again. This time, though, when Camille grabs that Mark II, he is making 100% the right call. You can argue in some of his previous outings about whether he made things better or worse, but this time, Ayug is in a pretty desperate situation when Camille goes out there. And if not for Camille fighting with Jared in what is sort of the climax of the episode, the point where their two parallel storylines actually intersect, which is a thing that parallel lines never actually do, (laughs) but...
0: But they're not always parallel. Sometimes they contradict.
1: So this is the point where their storylines intersect with the climactic battle between Jared and Camille, where we see both of them fighting in a much more exciting way that also seems to convey a lot more skill on both parts. Absolutely. But if not for Camille going out to fight Jared, chances are good the Argamo would have been destroyed along with the Mont Blanc.
0: Well, and most significantly for Camille, Requa would not have been able to get safely into the earth gravity well.
1: Right. Zeta is sometimes described as the most philosophical of the various Gundam series, and here we get both Camille and Jared being exposed to and seemingly internalizing some philosophical ideas from their red-suited mentors.
0: From Char and Lady Shar.
1: Why can't Quattro be Dude Lila?
0: I'm completely on board with calling Quatro Dude Lila.
1: In the scene where Camille and Dude Lila are putting on their normal suits, Camille asks Quattro a very straightforward question. He asks him why there were riots on Colony 30 Inside 1 that led to the Colony 30 incident, which, depending on which version of the Zeta translation you're looking at, you might see it referred to as the 30 Bunch incident. We'll probably talk later about the Japanese word here that they're using, which sounds like bunch but isn't. Hmm. We'll talk about that at some point in the future. But for now, Colony 30 incident. Camille asks about these riots. And then Quattro gives him the most insufferable answer. To this very straightforward question, why were there riots? And Quattro doesn't say, well, because of the taxes or because the Titans shot some innocent person. He says, because people can't trust each other.
0: Well, it felt very Yoda, right? The, like <laughs> fear leads to anger because it's people can't trust each other, which leads them to have all these doubts about each other's intentions, which lead them to think other people are wrong about things. And once you've decided someone is wrong about something important, it's going to inevitably lead to conflict.
1: Yeah, but like tax policy or
0: freedom of speech or freedom of
1: movement. Why? Why riots? And we never get an answer to that. Quattro is not interested in giving an answer. Maybe he doesn't have one. And then when Quattro has explained his philosophy on why conflict exists. Camille asks, oh, is that why you're fighting the Titans? And Quattro says, no, that, that doesn't apply to me. I'm different. I'm fighting them because the Titans need to be stopped.
0: He doesn't say that it's because he's different.
1: He No, but he does tell Camille that the universal rule of human interaction that he just laid out does not apply to him in this situation.
0: Right. The Titans are out of control and need to be stopped.
1: And I'm the one to do it, dramatically puts Helmet on over Mullet.
0: Camille goes on to ask... Still alive, dad. Then what should I do?
1: <laughs> and he gets a similar Yoda-esque comment. Like, well, how do you feel about what you're doing right now?
0: Basically, like, follow your feelings. If what you, if whatever you're currently doing feels right, then it is. Which is what drives Camille to go try to talk to Rekawa <laughs> before she <laughs> leaves. Although it's also Quattro letting him know, like, oh, she's going to be leaving soon. If you want to talk to her, now's the time.
1: I was about to say, this isn't actually related to philosophy, but it is in this scene, and so we need to talk about it. But now that I think about it, I think it is related to the philosophy conversation, because when Camille leaves, Quatro says, he reminds me of Amuro Ray. Which, if Quatro is in fact Shar Aznable, as Nina keeps insisting, despite all evidence to the contrary, that's a weird kind of ominous thing for Quatro to be saying about Camille. Since he could have instead said, he reminds me of that guy I tried repeatedly to kill over the course of a year, the one who wouldn't join my new type army. I wonder if he'll join my new Ayug type army.
0: It's worth remembering, though, that Shar really thought that he and Amro had common interests and that they could possibly find common ground. Like He, at the beginning of their battle conversation, <laughs> thought he was going to be able to bring Amro over to his side. So he probably sees some of the same potential. But you've also got Amuro not really caring about the army, not really caring about the wider battle, wanting to be in it for his own reasons. And it's becoming more and more clear that that's also how Camille feels. He doesn't, for all his hatred of the Titans, he doesn't have a strong enough feeling about one side or the other to support it outright. And he has so many negative feelings about, like, he probably wouldn't call it this, but the military industrial complex, <laughs> that the fact that both sides are fighting forces means he doesn't really want to be part of either.
1: That reminds me of last episode during the inadequate grief counseling scene when Quatro talks about how Char thought it was really important to overcome your own personal feelings. But that was the counterpoint to Amuro's position, because in First Gundam at the end, in that climactic clash of philosophies and ideals, Amuro's all about personal feelings, personal connections, the people who are close to you. And Char was all about the other thing, overcoming and ignoring your personal feelings for the sake of the cause. So maybe when he says that Camille reminds him of Amuro Ray, that's what he's feeling. That's what he's talking about. On the other side, Jared gets a crash course in how to be a new type.
0: Yeah. As he is heading out in his high, he's repeating these statements to himself. They begin to feel like mantra that he clearly got from Lila. (laughs) But yeah, he he says, I must sense enemy hostility through the armor of my mobile suit. And then he says, emanate your mind through the vacuum of space, which it really sounds like Lila is trying to teach him how to be a new type.
1: Though- from Lila's perspective, maybe this is just the goal is for her to teach him how to fight in space right. And so maybe the takeaway from this is like the like the essence of being a new type is really just how your consciousness expands in space,
0: of course, he also <laughs> mentioned something that has nothing to do with new type abilities, uh, something about holding back when the time is right to hold back so that you can have greater success later, which, feels very obvious to me like yeah of course you don't just like (laughs) rush in full steam every time all the time but that's basically been his mo to date
1: in the show in the text that one is not set off with quotes but that really feels like a quote like something that came out of the art of war or something he's learning
0: then we get to the the fight itself and a couple of moments struck me one Jared being super impressed with Lila, which I thought was rather sweet.
1: <laughs> She's so good at
0: fighting in a mobile suit.
1: We felt the same way.
0: Um, And then we have Jared and Camille fighting. But when he first encounters Camille, he wonders if it's the same pilot as the Red Rick Diaz. Yeah. He wonders if it's Shaquatro.
1: <laughs> I thought we agreed he was called Dude Lila now.
0: He has too many names. It's confusing. <laughs>
1: As always, we have some miscellaneous notes to close out our discussion of this episode.
0: Earlier, we touched on the Colony 30 incident, but the conversation between Reko and Emma, that is the first we as the audience are hearing about it, feels very important.
1: Besides the actual content of the conversation, which is very significant, and the fact that Emma keeps emoting extravagantly to show just how important the content of the conversation is, one of the big hints for how important this conversation is, is that we aren't just watching it. We watch Camille watch Blex and Beckner watching it. Those additional layers of observation emphasize how important the conversation is.
0: It seemed when we were watching like you might disagree with my read on this, (laughs) but point one, I think obviously there's a camera in Emma's room.
1: Of course. She's on probation. She might be a spy. Exactly. They're going to keep an like, eye on of her. Of course,
0: they're going to spy on her, mm-hmm. observe her.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I also think Rekoa went there with the intention of telling Emma this information to further attach her to the Ayug cause.
1: You don't think she was just pursuing Camille?
0: She may have gone in that direction to talk to Camille, but I think the whole like, oh, I'm leaving soon. Would you watch my plants? <laughs> is an excuse to get into Emma's room and talk to her further. Perhaps it was not planned out. Certainly, Blex and Beckner are surprised that she's in Emma's room. It may have been more of a, oh, I have an opportunity here.
1: Mm-hmm. But that's sort of the weird thing, isn't it? When Camille approaches this little surveillance station, what he overhears them saying is, we've located Ensign Recoa, she's in Lieutenant Emma's room. So it was Recoa they were trying to snoop on.
0: I don't think they were snooping. I think they're looking for her because she's supposed to be getting into a capsule and going on a mission.
1: Then why not just announce over the PA and send Rekawa to the hangar? No, I think they were snooping on her.
0: I disagree, but I guess only time will tell. Hmm. We get another little bit of philosophical disagreement here. The two women are talking. Emma says something along the lines of, "I don't want to be a Titan anymore, but even if I did, I couldn't." <laughs> But I also don't see why Ayug has to be so aggressive. You know, why did Ayug have to open fire on a colony full of innocent people? Right. And I don't, I do not like Recoa's justification.
1: No, Recoa's justification for this is really bad. Because
0: it boils down to, well, the other side kills a lot more people. So the fact that we killed a few people, it actually doesn't matter. A drop in the bucket, as it were.
1: I have some questions about Rekua's math here. Like, what is the ratio of innocent deaths that Rekua feels would be acceptable for Ayug here?
0: She brings up this incident, which, of course, I'm sure the news of which was kept very secret, never really got out, etc. Basically, there was civil unrest on a colony. Basque used a, a band, an illegal poisonous gas, killing everyone inside. And they, they do a lot with Emma's body language because they don't show us her in person. They show us her on a screen from the point of view of Blex, Beckener and Camille. And she just drops in onto her bed, which is where she's sitting. You see her whole body just like slumped down, her head hanging in her hands.
1: And she's gripping the sheets on the bed.
0: She can't really believe it. And Blex and Beckoner mention, we might have to show her. She could be a really good pilot she could be with us, but this is clearly very hard for her to take in. We might have to actually physically take her and show her this colony.
1: This is part of why I didn't really buy that the A.U.G. leadership had any kind of plan for eventually training Camille up and making him into a pilot as well, because they're willing to invest so much energy and attention into making sure that Emma is going to be a loyal and useful member of A.U.G. And they just don't care about Camille.
0: Well, to throw back at you, his parents did just die. Maybe they're waiting until he's had time to grieve. (laughs) Because in the early episodes, it's constant. Like, oh, I hope this boy's a new type. Oh, do you think he's a new type? Let's let him fight. Maybe we'll see if he's a new type. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe they want him to design new Gundams.
1: Just like his dad. Oh. Well, and he's even using the Mark II as a base for the Zeta.
0: And I don't know if you noticed, he mentioned he updated the armor, which was what his mother would have been working on. Mm -hmm. Also that they have that whole conversation while a bunch of techs are picking through the remains of the Red Rick
1: Diaz. Right next door with a window looking directly at it. I recommend, by the way, that you go back and watch that scene a couple of times and pay attention- to the brief emotions that flash across Camille's face.
0: Well, the the somewhat eerie line when you think about it, like, oh, it must be really difficult for the techs who have to comb through the remains of the mobile
1: suit. He's, he says Quatro's mobile suit. He's very specific about that. But you can also see him get like spooked when the head comes into view, mm-hmm. the cockpit where his dad was. But before that, when he's working on the design for the Zeta Gundam and Astanaji comes up behind him and puts a hand on the chair, Camille doesn't notice he's there until Astanaji touches the chair. And when he does, there's a very brief moment where Camille like freaks out a little bit. Mm. He starts. So he's like he's like hyper focused on his work, on the design. And then he has like a strong startle reaction when he notices Astanaji is there. Suggesting Camille is dealing with some trauma reactions, but also those are not uncommon symptoms in children who have been subjected to long-term abuse and neglect.
0: So maybe they want him to be an engineer and not a pilot, but I think they wouldn't care so much about his new typeness if they weren't thinking pilot in the long term. But getting back to the philosophical point, what we're really seeing represented are two very different views of... Rebellion, two very different views of standing up to power. On the one hand, we have Emma acknowledging the necessity, but we shouldn't do what the other side does. We should be trying to keep innocent people safe at all costs. On the other hand, we have Rekoa, not quite, but almost saying, you know, the violence and the risk are justified because of the, the violence and brutality of our enemy.
1: And then you have Camille, not so much in this episode, but in the previous episode, who sort of says, is Ayug even that much better? What even is the point of this conflict that is causing so much misery?
0: It's true that we have yet to hear anything from Ayug that sound like demands or a manifesto. We assume it's about self-determination for space noids, but we don't actually know. No clue.
1: The most we've gotten about Ayug's actual goals has actually come from that military police officer who was interrogating Camille back in episode one.
0: So yeah, this was a this was a big episode for airing a bunch of philosophical ideas <laughs> and ideological ones amongst the characters. I have one last thing to talk about for this episode. Are you ready? I'm ready. Oh hi, Amaro!
1: <laughs> Hello, old friend.
0: Also, apparently, he got rich.
1: You <laughs> know, he wrote an autobiography, did the book tour.
0: He's living in a very fancy, very modern-looking house, lounging around by the pool.
1: Has a butler.
0: Has yeah, has a butler, which just made me think. I, I spent way too much time during the episode wondering what Tomino would name a butler. <laughs> what would be the Tomino version of Alfred?
1: That's a really good question. <laughs> Listeners, suggest your Tomino Butler names. Maybe Amaro got rich selling mass-produced haros.
0: Anyway, he's back. He can feel someone calling him from outer space.
1: It did seem like Amaro just spends all of his time lying next to his pool, staring up at space, waiting to get that call.
0: Wherever he is, there's a power outage. I don't know why that's relevant or there's a line about that, but oh, apparently.
1: Because uh, the mission that Quattro and the other Richteros pilots were on was to blow up a solar power satellite.
0: Oh, I assumed, I, I could tell that the satellite was solar powered, but I thought those were defense satellites because they shoot at they the have, mobile suits.
1: Yeah, but there's also a solar battery there. They destroy a couple of satellites during this episode, Um, but I'm pretty sure one of the satellites is like collecting solar power out in space where you don't have to worry about the atmosphere and then beaming it down to earth. Yeah. That might be a good research. Beaming
0: the power down to earth. No,
1: that's one of the ways they do it.
0: This week, we research and discuss complex post traumatic stress disorder, a uniquely Japanese take on the mother complex, ajase and nikon therapy, and solar power from space.
1: The following research segment deals with an extremely heavy topic. I am going to be talking at length about trauma, physical and psychological abuse, and the effects of all of that, including and especially on children. I will not be describing child abuse, at least not any more so than has already been depicted in Zeta Gundam, but you may still wish to skip this segment. If you would prefer not to hear it, you should skip ahead now, 16 minutes, to the 63rd minute of the podcast. Back in season 1, episode 9, when Amuro was having his first major breakdown and Nina was talking about attitudes towards corporal punishment in Japan, I presented some information about the symptoms experienced by people in the wake of a traumatic event. These are powerful, life-altering symptoms that, if they persist in the aftermath of the trauma instead of fading naturally away, become post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, Much of what Amuro does and says in the first third of First Gundam demonstrates the severe effects of the trauma on him, and much of what audiences and fellow white-based survivors alike find irritating or irrational about him becomes completely understandable when viewed through the lens of his trauma. For all that the AUG leadership views Camille as a potential successor to Amuro's legacy, a kind of Amuro Mark II, his personality and behavior are very different. Indeed, in some ways, they are total opposites. At his lowest points, Amuro refused to get into the Gundam, and Camille can't be kept out of it. While Amuro was prone to depression and withdrawal from the world, Camille swings wildly between grief, rage, and obvious desperate hunger for attention. Perhaps the biggest thing they have in common then is that audiences just can't stand them in the early parts of their respective shows. If you've been around the Gundam fandom for a while, You've definitely heard the same complaints about both of them more times than you can count. So Amaro was dealing with the massive trauma of the Xian attack on Side 7 and the massacre of practically every person he had ever known, not to mention the things he himself was forced to do in the wake of the attack. But Camille was already acting like this before the Ayug attack on his home colony. The deaths of his parents were certainly traumatic, but... Those came in episodes three and five of the show, and while they do seem to have pushed him to emotional and behavioral extremes, he was already like this when we found him. So what explains just everything about Camille? For him, the situation is a bit more complex. But first, some background. The term post-traumatic stress disorder as well as our modern understanding of the condition, developed in the late 1970s largely in response to the massive number of American Vietnam War veterans who were still struggling with the aftereffects of their experiences during the war. This is not to say that PTSD is a new phenomenon. Historians have identified what sounds very much like PTSD in soldiers at least as far back as the Assyrian Empire, a thousand years before the Common Era.
0: That's incredible. Just from like diaries or records? Wow.
1: And art and other stuff. You you look at like the rages of heroes in the epic poems. Mm. And there are records of Assyrian soldiers who would do three-year tours as soldiers and then would come back and the difficulty of readjusting to civilian life. Yeah. While there is an undeniable link between combat and PTSD, any traumatic event can trigger traumatic stress and anyone can struggle in the aftermath of that. Psychological trauma is, by its nature, overwhelming, and in those who develop PTSD, the brain's reaction to the trauma creates major changes in the biochemistry, functioning, and even the anatomy of the brain, as well as throughout the body. Like a river that, during a catastrophic flood, washes away its banks and changes its course, there is no way to undo or get over PTSD. It can be managed, and with proper treatment and support. The brain can grow and change in positive directions too, but what happened will always have happened. All of that describes PTSD in its conventional presentation, as a reaction to a single massively traumatic event. Besides wartime experiences, these traumatic events can be things like natural disasters, the deaths of loved ones, serious illnesses, miscarriages, and childbirth. Most of what happens to Amaro fits into this mold, as do the deaths of Camille's parents. But even before that, Camille was demonstrating the symptoms of a related condition, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, or CPTSD. Now, to be clear, CPTSD is a relatively new idea and still somewhat controversial. It is not included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, aka the DSM, which is published by the American Psychiatric Association and is sort of like the Bible for mental health, both in terms of its influence and because it is a lightning rod for controversy. However, CPTSD is included in the draft version of the World Health Organization's International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems, and there is a growing body of literature and research about the ways in which it is similar to, and distinct from, PTSD. The key distinction lies in the nature of the trauma that caused the disorder. While PTSD is usually caused by a single major traumatic event, C-PTSD develops as a product of prolonged and repeated interpersonal trauma. So rather than appearing in the survivors of natural disasters or human-made calamities, C-PTSD is associated with concentration camp survivors, sweatshop workers, victims of kidnapping, slavery, and human trafficking, victims of extreme bullying, and escapees from cults. All of these are typified not just by the prolonged and repeated nature of the trauma, but also by the feelings of terror, worthlessness, and above all, helplessness and impossibility of escape that these situations create. There's no evidence that Camille has experienced any of those things. But who else is subjected to prolonged, repeated interpersonal trauma? Who else is made to feel terrified, worthless, and helpless to do anything about their trauma? The most common forms of chronic trauma that are associated with CPTSD are the physical, psychological, and sexual abuse and neglect of children, as well as intimate partner violence, which can traumatize children even if they only witness it. There is good reason to believe that children are less likely than adults to develop conventional PTSD after a traumatic event, but they are much more vulnerable to CPTSD, and it can completely alter a child's persona right when it is developing. Rather than showing a sudden change the way an adult might, they are seen as simply being disruptive or withdrawn by nature, and so the real roots of their trauma go unaddressed. As one researcher put it, they are left to lose their futures bit by bit. We know that the recently deceased Lieutenant Franklin Bedan was physically abusive to his wife and his son because we witnessed that in the show. And despite its superficial similarity to the interpersonal violence within the white-based crew in First Gundam, the famous bright slap, it's clear that this violence is different, this is abuse, and Franklin is an abusive bully who expresses his humiliation and rage by striking whichever member of his family is closest. Neither Hilda or Camille acts surprised when he does this. These are not isolated incidents, this is not new behavior. And we can be confident that the physical violence we're seeing is only one manifestation of the abuse and the neglect in Camille's childhood. Incidents of abuse are never standalone events. Franklin did not transform into a magnificent father figure once his arm was tired. Trauma, especially for a child, invariably involves a feeling of not being seen, not being understood, of being ignored. This is part of why the typical reactions to threats run the gamut from fight or flight, which are both ways of taking control of your own safety when no one else will, to fawning and freezing, strategies that are designed to convince someone else to protect you when you yourself are helpless. You've probably heard of the fight or flight reaction, but fawning and freezing are part of the same instinct, and they are just as much a natural part of how humans respond to threats. A child who is trapped in an abusive or neglectful situation and who is entirely dependent on the caregivers who are themselves the source of the trauma, who is unable to escape, will make the internal adaptations necessary to survive an intolerable external situation. After all, where could Camille have gone? What could he have done? These internal adaptations include developing a powerful sense of loyalty to their abusers who are, after all, all that they have in the world. They may go to great lengths to try to maintain their connection to their abusers, but what they are forced to do or accept in order to please their abusers can cause intense personal shame. You begin to see yourself as a monster, unworthy of help or safety or love. From this perspective, the world is not a benign or even a neutral place. The world is inherently threatening, and no one can be trusted. Children experiencing CPTSD develop hyperactive defense mechanisms, and they can only imagine disastrous outcomes. To quote from The Body Keeps the Score, which is all about how people respond to trauma, when children are oppositional, defensive, numbed out, or enraged, it's also important to recognize that such bad behavior may repeat action patterns that were established to survive serious threats, even if they are intensely upsetting or off-putting. And yet all of this corresponds with a desperate longing for attachment and recognition, and this drives all kinds of seemingly irrational, self-destructive behavior, like in serial delinquents who feel validated every time they're caught because the police officers dealing with their cases recognize them from their prior arrests. It can manifest in risky and age-inappropriate sexual behavior, as well as a craving for touch, which is paradoxically mixed with the fear of any physical contact. So now let's talk symptoms and Camille. Problems with emotional regulation, experienced as explosive, uncontrollable anger, often in response to extremely minor provocations. Intense frustration in response to small setbacks. Intense and spontaneous attachment, as well as compulsive sexuality. A difficulty expressing emotions in words. Unnatural affect, where the emotional expression of the face doesn't really match the mood or the tenor of the situation. And this just sounds like Camille all over. Episodes of dissociation. Dissociation is, in very rough terms, an experience of detachment from your surroundings that can range from staring off into space and daydreaming at the mild end, the way Camille does in the first episode, to feeling as though you have left your body or retreated somewhere deep inside it, which may be what happens to Camille when he goes completely blank after his mother's death right up until Emma slaps him.
0: So helpful.
1: And at the extreme end, it can include amnesia, multiple separate streams of consciousness, and even the assumption of an entirely new and different self. Changes in self-perception, including a sense of being completely different from all other human beings. This may express as a feeling of superiority or inferiority, arrogance or self-loathing, or both at the same time. It brings with it the feeling that no other person can understand you. Think of Camille telling Recoa that she can't understand his family situation, or telling the space therapists that none of them can say anything about his family. Fluctuations in perceptions of the perpetrators and preoccupation with them, including fantasies of revenge, paradoxical gratitude, uncritical acceptance, as well as blanket resistance to the perpetrators' beliefs and rationalizations. And you can see this in Camille's interactions with his parents, as well as the way he talks about them after their deaths. Isolation and withdrawal from others, alternating with repeated searches for a rescuer. And I think that's on full display here. First with Recoa, who has already started standing in for his mother, and so is a natural first choice for a rescuer. And then Emma, after Camille sees Recoa with Quatro.
0: Both of them also strong candidates for, I forget how you phrased it exactly, but that sort of excessively strong, excessively fast attachment to someone because he barely knows either of these women. It's been a few days, maybe a couple weeks at most. <laughs> and his feelings definitely appear to be out of step with what he knows about them and how long he's known them.
1: Definitely. So why does seeing Reco out with Quattro distress Camille so much? Both PTSD and CPTSD can cause a person to project the circumstances of their trauma onto other situations. This is why a veteran might be triggered by fireworks. The brain's hyperactive threat recognition system hears the pop of a firework and connects it to gunfire and bombs. Even if the event does not trigger a flashback of the kind that is usually depicted in media with auditory and visual hallucinations, the body responds to the perceived threat in the same way it did to the real one. Massive amounts of stress hormones flood the system. Muscles tense. Reflexes go haywire. The language and planning centers of the brain switch off. And the more often this response is triggered, the more deeply ingrained it becomes. These reactions are intense, unpleasant, and mostly uncontrollable. People who experience them often go to great lengths, reconfiguring their entire lives in order to avoid having to experience them. So, when Camille sees the woman onto whom he has begun projecting surrogate momness in an intimate conversation with Quattro, it is no surprise to me that he would project his own parents onto them, that he would freak out, and that he would do everything to get away from the situation. We can also view his distress seeing Rekua getting ready to leave for her mission to Earth through the same lens. A few days ago, Camille watched his mother, the person who raised him and who was supposed to protect him, die alone in a capsule in space. Now Rekua, the one person on the Argama who we have seen taking care of Camille, is getting into a ship that they call a capsule, so that she can leave on a dangerous mission. No wonder Camille is worried about her. I want to close with another quote from The Body Keeps the Score, which I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, just in case you still don't see the connection between Camille's childhood trauma and his behavior at the beginning of Zeta. If your caregivers ignore your needs or resent your very existence, you need to learn to anticipate rejection and withdrawal. You cope as well as you can by blocking out your parents' hostility or neglect and act as if it doesn't matter. But your body is likely to remain in a state of high alert, prepared to ward off blows, deprivation, or abandonment. Maybe the most devastating long-term effect of this shutdown is not feeling real inside. When you don't feel real, nothing matters, and you may resort to extremes in an effort to feel something, even getting into fistfights with strangers. I don't mean to suggest here that the writers of Zeta Gundam knew about PTSD and CPTSD, that they studied the nascent psychiatric research and intentionally wrote Camille's character with those symptoms in mind, but they grew up in post war Japan, children to a generation that was itself deeply traumatized by the war and the poverty that followed the peace they have to have known children like Camille. They must have observed the patterns. And in trying to write a realistic seeming character, they tapped into that intuitive understanding. As for Camille's future, well, there's no real getting over CPTSD. But one of the most meaningful steps in overcoming the challenges it poses and learning to grow as a person lies in finding some purpose for your life beyond mere survival.
0: When I was researching Japanese parenting last week, a paper came up that after a quick skim I knew I would have to revisit, a paper discussing Naikan and the Ajase complex. Naikan means literally inner-looking and is a formalized, therapeutic practice of self-reflection often used in conjunction with other therapies and mental health treatment in Japan. It was created by Yoshimoto Ishin, a devout Buddhist of the Jodo Shinshu sect, which is part of Pure Land Buddhism and the most widely practiced branch of Buddhism in Japan. He felt driven to a certain amount of asceticism and decided to perform Mishirabe, which is a kind of sensory deprivation. You spend a period of time in a dark cave with no food or sleep or water and spend the whole time engaged in self-examination. He created Nikon in the 1940s to make that kind of introspection that he experienced during Mishirabe more accessible to other people. Easier, a little softer, more secular. <laughs> there are many different ways to practice it, but the most intense form involves a week-long retreat that is almost entirely silent. You only ever speak to the facilitator. Nikon uses three questions to structure your thinking. You choose an important relationship in your life and you ask yourself, what have I received from person X? What have I given to person X? What troubles and difficulties have I caused person X? What troubles and difficulties has person X caused me is deliberately left out. Ishin thought humans were very good at thinking about that question already, and too much focus was actually responsible for a lot of our day-to-day unhappiness. You are trying to look at yourself from the perspective of another person who is an important part of your life. The first relationship considered in this way is usually that between the person doing Nikon and their mother. Family relationships are assumed to be both emotionally complex and closely associated to our sense of self. And remember how last week we discussed that in Japan at this time, mother love and the mother-child relationship was considered to be special. And of critical importance to a person's development. Within Japan, there are some deeply skeptical views of Nikon, uh, that it's inherently conservative, that it plays on cultural feelings of guilt, that it's founded in an old-fashioned conception of the mother-child relationship, um, that it supports and reinforces traditional morals and social values, basically that it's a process of re-socialization. Like, oh, there's something wrong with you and you're not fitting in, and we're going to bring you into harmony with your mom again, and then everything will be fine. Uh, A lot of people consider that it's unsuitable for modern Japanese people, and it's sometimes teasingly called nakikan, or crying practice.
1: Is the idea that after three days in silence, thinking about these ideas, you just start weeping?
0: And that there's this idea that as you think about your mother as a person, and the trouble you've caused her and everything you've received from her, you feel spontaneously guilt for whatever those troubles have been as well as forgiveness for whatever resentments you carry towards her. And so it's this like, "Oh, I'm so sorry, mom." like <laughs> yeah, that it's that it ends up being about feelings of uh, grief and grief and guilt and wanting forgiveness for whatever the things are that make you feel that. The paper I found takes a slightly different view. Through ethnographic study, which is to say interviews with clients and practitioners and personal experience of Nikon as a participant and an assistant practitioner, the author comes to the conclusion that Nikon leads a person to a new understanding of themselves and their relation to the people and the world around them in a manner that's more rooted in Buddhist tradition than in modern Japanese social norms. This is where the ajase complex comes in. The ajase complex was first described by Heisaku Kosawa in a paper he presented to Sigmund Freud in 1932 while he was studying at the Psychoanalytic Institute of Vienna. It was later further developed by Kosawa's student Okonogi Kego, and it's based on a story from Buddhist scripture. Queen Idaike is concerned about losing her youth and beauty and wants to give birth to a son to protect her status. A prophet tells her there's a hermit in the forest who will be reborn as the king's son. The queen goes to the hermit, uh, but wanting to speed this process along, kills him. (laughs) So she has effectively killed her son, though it is in a past life. Mm -hmm. Just before he dies, the hermit tells her that when he is reborn as her son, he will curse his father. Fearful of the curse, she tries to kill her infant the moment it's born. In one version of the story, she gives birth off the edge of a tower, uh, but he survives. In the tower version of the story, the baby only breaks a finger. Uh, And he is named Ajase, the Sanskrit word from which the name is derived means both broken finger and hating the circumstances of one's birth.
1: The misfortune of birth?
0: One could say that. Ajase grows up relatively happily until Devadatta, a cousin and enemy of the Buddha, tells him about his mother's attempted infanticide. This happens, totally coincidentally I'm sure, when Ajase is in his adolescence. His idealized image of his mother is destroyed. He imprisons his father and tries to kill his mother, but is stopped by one of his advisors. His father starves to death while imprisoned, and Ajase begins to feel guilt over his actions toward his parents. At this time, he contracts a horrible skin disease. In addition to looking awful, it causes him to stink and no one will come near him, except his mother, who tries a variety of treatments but nothing works. Finally, she goes to the Buddha for help. It is while talking to him that she acknowledges her own misdeeds in killing the hermit and attempting to kill her son. She returns to Ajase, and each of them, having acknowledged their bad actions, is able to forgive the other, and Ajase goes on to become a wise and celebrated king. Kozawa saw Ajase's anger as stemming not from the attempted murder, per se, but from the shattering of an idealized and, frankly, asexual image of his mother. That her actions show she was more concerned with her relationship with the king than with the welfare of her child. Characteristic of the Ajase complex, the mother's feelings toward her child are ambivalent, and the child's feelings toward the mother are hostile. Whose relationship does that sound like? Amaro? (laughs) The emphasis is on re-evaluation of a relationship and on achieving harmony or unity. There were a couple of points in previous episodes where I described the vibe as Oedipal. Camille's focus on his father's affair... And that aspect of the relationship felt like perhaps a reference to an edible complex to me. But the Ajase complex might, in fact, be a better fit. We know that while Hilda does seem to care about Camille, I mean, she comes to pick him up when he gets imprisoned. She's worried about him when she finds out he might have stolen the Mark II. We also know she's not a huge part of his day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. She works all the time. That doesn't necessarily mean her feelings are ambivalent, but it, it sort of points in that direction.
1: It doesn't seem like she rates her relationship with her husband above the well-being of her child, but maybe she considers her work more important in the day-to-day sort of sense than the well-being of her child.
0: I do see sort of seeds of the Nikon model in some of what Camille says after his parents' death when he's talking about... They were people who did their best. You know, he he acknowledges <laughs> that they were bad parents to the point where he hesitates to even call them parents. But there's also a degree to which he seems to want to forgive them. <laughs> so I would like to clarify, I would never tell a person who's experienced abuse or trauma at the hands of another person that they should forgive that other person. <laughs> that is not my call to make. Uh, the position of Nikon as a practice is that The ability to forgive someone and to sort of recognize them as a person, a whole person with their own faults and problems, allows you to let go of resentments that actually harm you in your life.
1: Like you said, very Buddhist.
0: Yes. And one of the sources I read acknowledged you wouldn't, strictly speaking, have to start from the maternal relationship. If that's not a good relationship to work with, you could pick some other significant relationship in your life but it's clearly very central to this story. I also found myself through both Tom's piece and this one thinking about Camille projecting sort of motherliness on Rekua, and the possibility that his focus on her is an attempt to resolve that relationship, to resolve that conflict, because he's never going to have it with his parents, right? We We get a sense that, Part of his grief over his parents' death is now it can never get better. It can never... That relationship can never be anything but what it was. There's no chance for it to change or evolve in any way. Mm -hmm. And by reenacting parts of that with people around him, he gets to try to fix it, to have it be something better. He gets to attempt a successful rescue for a capsule. Mm -hmm. And despite our own understanding... You know, Camille feels a sense of guilt and responsibility for what's happened to both of his parents. And that's not rational necessarily. Like, they were adults and they made decisions about their lives. (laughs) And, you know, we could just as easily lay that blame on the Titans, but Camille clearly feels and expresses personal guilt and responsibility. And there's no opportunity for him to experience forgiveness either. In the talkback, I scoffed at the idea of a satellite collecting solar energy and transmitting it wirelessly back to Earth. But Tom was right. This is a relatively old and perfectly plausible idea. The solar panels would collect sunlight in space. The amount of solar energy that could be collected would be much higher than solar panels on Earth. There's no day-night cycle or seasonal cycle to worry about, no cloud cover, and no atmosphere to absorb or refract as much as 30% of the energy. The satellite would then convert that energy to microwaves, which would be collected on Earth. Isaac Asimov actually wrote about this basic idea in a short story in 1941, and the first more practical and scientific proposals came out in the late 60s and early 70s. There continues to be some research into this internationally, mostly by Japan, China, and Russia, but the U.S. basically stopped looking into it in the early 1980s. There are a couple of major feasibility issues. The first is land use, you would need huge amounts of land for the microwave rectenna, the collector for the microwave energy. The even bigger issue is the cost of launching necessary materials into orbit. A space-based solar satellite that would generate comparable electricity to a large commercial power plant would require launching 80,000 tons of material into space. Until launches are less expensive or We have some kind of off-world industrial center that could manufacture (laughs) the necessary parts in space. This idea is prohibitively expensive, much more so than most other green energies. But we're talking about a future where we have Luna 2, where we have other resource mining and manufacturing in space already, which makes it a much more feasible idea. Next time on episode 2.8, Pilgrimage, we will watch and discuss Molesuit Zeta Gundam episode 7 and Imaginary Beings Created by Media Hype. Brendan Fraser in The Mummy. Future Shower. A.U. needs an HR department. I shall call her Ponytail. This time, the apples are apples. Lila does Lila stuff, Jamaican does Jamaican stuff, Jared does Camille stuff, and Camille does Amaro stuff. And Childhood's End. You will see the tears of time.
1: How do you like them apples? Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, gundampodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to gundampodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, actually, the reason Camille didn't want Rekoa to leave is because he wanted to take the reentry capsule himself and get off this ship and away from these lunatics on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. And the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening.
0: I've tried so hard not to laugh. Did you see me? <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> New York Tomes was <laughs> some choice writing.
1: You feel inspired by that? Oh my God. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: but we know that he's calling it the Zeta Gundam.
1: Alternate joke, roll credits. That was Green Noah 2, right? No. That's not what I said or what I meant. I don't know. I don't know that anything will ever beat Shagakuru. What about a modern Ska cover of Shagakuru?
0: It wouldn't, it still wouldn't be as good. Something about Shagakuru It's just so weird and great.
1: Something about that particular moment, that experience in time, the first time you heard (laughs) Shagakuru, nothing else can be quite the same. Nina is silently dancing around over in her seat on the other side of our little studio.
0: I can hear the song in my head.
1: Tshara Gakudi. I
0: like write the whole thing and then I start reading it and I'm like, wait, is this relevant? (laughs) Oh no, I'm not sure that it's relevant. All right, short, fun one.
1: Yay, short and fun.
0: Oh no, cookie mouth.
1: Yep, it's affecting me too.